I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grasso. Tonight on Fast, a big bank breakdown. What happened on the city call that made one of our traders hit the sell button? Plus, Apple pulling the wraps off its first ever 5G iPhones. But was this the ultimate sell the news event? And later, a big story unfolding in the biotech world is a second major company in as many days causes its coronavirus treatment trial. We will bring you the very latest on this developing story straight ahead. But we start off with a big day for the big banks. Earnings season officially underway. City and J.P. Morgan both out with results this morning, both topping expectations, both stocks falling. We mentioned that somebody uh, was listening in on the conference call and it caused that trader to hit the sell button. We won't tell you just who it is yet. But Tim, it wasn't you. What'd you make of the conference call? <laughs> well, I think you have a case here where, where clearly the numbers on the headline look fantastic. But what was really causing that? That was about provisions. That was about credit quality, which, you know, it, it's strange because we were complaining that we were fearful that the banks had much bigger credit issues than, than were being, uh, you know, possibly seen on the headline. And therefore, they were putting aside these major reserves. It, what, what J.P. Morgan, uh, look, that beat was was uh, a combination of some very strong uh, investment banking and FIC business, but also uh, the provisions that came down. That's something that we should overall be very encouraged about with banks, because I think there's more where that came from. But there's some sense that this was the only reason uh, and that net interest uh, margins fell, I think, about 14 basis points. This is something where I think banks are going to continue to see pressure. Uh, and if you look at the glass overall, People view that as a certainly a half empty when you look at earnings power going forward. So um, banks traded down right away after those headlines pre-market looked pretty good uh, as people sorted through the numbers. Yeah, it was definitely the conference call guy. And you see Citi's performance over the course of the day down 5% versus J.P. Morgan's down 1.5% or so. Uh, what struck me about the conference call and reading some of the transcript is that analysts after analysts were trying to get Citi to pinpoint the approximate cost of fixing the regulatory issues. And after question after question after question, nobody really got an answer. And that seemed to be the problem. No, it's, that didn't seem to. You know, I mean, that was the problem, clearly. And, and somebody, I think, one of the analysts, and I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me, but they, they said, you know, what's in terms of regulatory issues, what's the difference between you? Are, you? are you this year's Wells Fargo, which is somewhat damning in terms of just the question. But to your point, nobody seemed to have an answer. And I think... That's problematic in this environment. We can talk about tangible book value and what I think about J.P. Morgan. I'm sure Karen has some some opinions there. But, you know, I think Karen made the point yesterday, the run up in some of these banks, understanding it wasn't all that significant, but you had a number of these banks run up, specifically J.P. Morgan from, I think, 92 to 102. Maybe that was the reason why it was sort of buy the rumor, sell the news in terms of the earnings today, Mel. Yeah, um, we were having technical issues with Karen. She is back now. She is, in fact, the trader who sold half her position on the back of that conference call. So, Karen, what alarmed you? Yeah, what alarmed me? Well, you know, there was all the other stuff that with J.P. Morgan had, the good provisions, the good capital markets, but also the net interest margin spread. But... It didn't really inspire me the way they talked about trying to get her, trying to work through the regulatory issues, why they hadn't made more progress already since I've known about this for a while, how much it was going to cost, how long it would take to fix. And given those extra expenses, how are they going to get a higher ROE? What, what parts of their business were they going to be really excited about? And they really didn't have good answers to any of those questions. 
You know, and so I just think a dollar of book value at J.P. Morgan is worth a lot more than a dollar of book value at Citi. It trades that way. It should trade that way. It was just very uninspiring. The funny thing from the call, Mike Mayo, who's a very outspoken analyst, was sort of begging the CEO to step aside now and let Jane Frazier get to work. So it really, they were not confidence-inspiring, and uh, the stock deserved to be down. So profitability lags its peers. ROE lags its peers. It's already put. It's already said that it's going to spend a billion dollars uh, this year to to work through this regulatory issue, Steve. But it doesn't have a handle. At least it's not sharing its estimate on how much it will cost in the future or how long. If you are like, if you are, I don't want to say a lover of banks. If you appreciate the bank trade and want to be in a bank, is this the bank to be in at this point? No, I think you have to either be in Goldman Sachs or you go into investment managing and you go into a BlackRock. If you look at BlackRock price action today, it was the only one that was green. So I think the retail audience or uh, the investing audience is probably leaning towards a BlackRock. Having said that, Melissa, if you look at the 10-year yield, then you overlay the XLF and all the financials. They trade in lockstep with yields. And we we had a hint of uh, money coming out of growth, going into value last week for the last two weeks. Now you're starting to see that sort of unwind for the last two days because you had Apple and Amazon and technology suck up all the air in the room. But I think that financials truly need that value trade. They truly need rates to increase. And that was starting to move the needle for them on a yield basis. These guys are covering it on a micro basis. I'm covering it on a macro. This, for me, is value. Mm-hmm. They are at the epicenter of the value trade. But you do need that 10-year yield to start rising for the banks to actually work again. But would you rather that you floated to me? It's Goldman Sachs and it's BlackRock. Did I float over I don't recall saying the words, would you rather cross my lip. I mean, I don't, I just don't remember that that happening whatsoever, but if you want to, you you go ahead and do that and do what you, what you like. Um, Karen, I want to go back to you. What makes you hold on to half of that position still? Um, I guess that, I mean, it trades like with a, you're in the doghouse valuation. So that is somewhat compelling. I want to see what Jane Fraser can do. Um, but I, but uh, you know, I have sort of a trading position, and a holding position. So the trading position I sold, and it, and it almost wouldn't have mattered what price the stock traded at because I just found that that call so uninspiring. But as a value girl, you know, I'm always interested in something that's really cheap. It is cheap. It deserves to be cheap. But I do think there's sort of a path higher. Uh, but it definitely warrants a smaller position, for sure, which it is now. Guy, if not City, then what bank? See, I think City's interesting. You know, I understand what Karen's saying 100%. And we mentioned, we've mentioned for a while that City, in terms of price of tangible book, is trading at levels we last saw probably the financial crisis. And today, uh, they reported tangible book. I think it was, and Karen probably knows better than I, but $62, give or take. So you're talking about a stock right now that's trading, I, I don't know, 62% of tangible book. I think By 72. comparison, and... and, and I, I didn't hear what you said, but in, 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 in comparison, J.P. Morgan's tangible book went from, I think, $63 to $77 for reasons that Karen also can explain, but that's the math. So 
You're talking about J.P. Morgan that's now trading 1.3 times tangible book. It deserves that valuation. By the way, it probably deserves more of that valuation. And I can make an argument just based on that math. It should be a $125 stock. Um, but I think cities in the doghouse they are in the penalty box for good reason. But that valuation specifically to me, even with all the headwinds, even with all the things we're going to hear about it, remains somewhat compelling to me and City. Yeah, Tim, you are in City, correct? So um, this didn't prompt you to reevaluate your position whatsoever? Uh, Chateau Bow Wow, but I, I, I didn't hear it. <laughs> I didn't hear it the same way Karen heard it today. I absolutely respect Karen's call. And, and Citibank, which has underperformed J.P. Morgan, so relative to another money center bank, best of breed by 20% since that June 5th high, um, by, by 20%. And, and I, I think the, the issues for Citibank really are get on with the restructuring, the reference to whatever went on in today's call, but, but more importantly, the fact that this has proven to be a company uh, that isn't even controlling expenses like they used to. That was one of the big disappointments today, too. The best thing City had going for it uh, were, were reserves that were lighter than expected. Uh, and, and I think for now, this is not, I didn't hear anything new. There was nothing in those numbers uh, that haven't you know, already been, I think, punished in the stock. I was actually surprised to see the the massive underperformance today even on a day when the headlines looked okay for the banks and they disappointed so no not making a move today and, and I think looking forward to Morgan Stanley um, I, I think you know we've talked a lot about that that company over the last few weeks based upon closing E-Trade and Eat Advance mm -hmm. uh, the difference between the business model and that one which is uh, being rewarded both in terms of the analyst community but more importantly by the market is the recurring revenue stream and the predictability and the lower risk and the lower volatility in that earnings of Morgan Stanley, and I think you're going to be very surprised. And I, I think that's a stock you can own into earnings. All right. Uh, for more on banks, let's bring in Gerard Cassidy, the head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy at RBC. Gerard, great to have you with us. Uh, did you find the city call as alarming as Karen did? And, and I'll, I'll put this question to you, which was posed on the call. Um, is, is city this year's Wells Fargo? I would say no, it's not this year's Wells Fargo by any stretch of the imagination. The problems that City has, of course, are internal controls and procedure problems. Wells's problems were consumer, you know, problems with their consumer customers, where those customers were hurt and damaged. So it's I would equate it more to the you might recall the J.P. Morgan London Whale problem of about seven or eight years ago. That's the I think the more similar comparison. But it was disappointing. I mean, they certainly were asked uh, consistently throughout the call about the expense number for working through these problems. They don't have their arms around it just yet. As part of the cease and desist order, they have about 120 days where they have to put their plan in place. They'll have an estimate, I think, by then, which means we'll probably get a fourth quarter number. But it's going to take time. It's going to uh, be challenging on the cost side because revenues are under pressure for the industry, as the traders have been talking about. The interest rate environment has put pressure on that net interest margin for everyone, which is going to affect revenues in 2021. Since, since you're making the comparison to the London Whale episode, Gerard, um, for, for J.P. Morgan, when that happened, did, did you as an analyst get a sense of how much that episode would cost J.P. Morgan and what sort of time frame? I'm just trying to understand if there is a, you know, an appropriate valuation discount embedded in Citigroup shares right now, given we don't know the extent of the expense and we don't know the time frame in which this issue will be resolved. No, that's a fair question, Melissa. And I would say that I think the stock has overreacted to the problems. You might remember when this first came out, 
a couple of weeks ago, the stock traded down two days in a row. Obviously, it's underperformed again today. And don't get me wrong, the, the problems are serious, but they're, they're fixable. And the, and the big difference is that, again, this is not something where customers were damaged or hurt. And in the J.P. Morgan case, you know, the losses were bigger just because they were trading losses. But it was a control and procedure issue there as well. And it was fixed rather quickly because it was more trading than it is with this issue when they have to, again, control the back office. It'll take time. These cease and desist orders uh, are very powerful. And we will get a number. It, and we got to remember, too, that you know, the company does have a lot of momentum in, in, in investment banking, which J.P. Morgan put up good numbers today. And like the guy said, uh, we're going to see probably good numbers from Goldman and Morgan Stanley this week as well. Karen, you got a question? Yeah, hi, Gerard. Thanks for being on. Uh, let me ask you something about the pressure on the net interest margin. A lot of that was due to a, just an influx of deposits. Do you think they're going to be better able, either Citi or J.P. Morgan, to convert some of those deposits into anything higher yielding than you know the very shortest end of the curve? Karen, you put your thumb on it. It's it's a you know unbelievable problem to have, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but there's too many too too many deposits. The inflow into the banking system because of what the Federal Reserve has been doing has been extraordinary. As you all know, the balance sheet at the Fed is now close to $7 trillion. It was just under $4 trillion before the pandemic, and that money has to flow somewhere, and it's flowing into the banking system. Unfortunately, the banks do not have the loan demand to support that kind of deposit growth, and it has to go into very short-term assets, meaning sitting on the Fed's balance sheet, and it's costing them money, believe it or not. It's really hurting the net interest margin. So we need to see that, believe it or not, deposits outflow or put them to work. But the banks are a little reluctant to do that because they don't want to go out on the yield curve and take that interest rate risk. So the pressure on the margin is not going to be alleviated, I don't think, anytime soon. All right. Gerard, thanks for joining us. Great to hear from you. Gerard You're Cassidy welcome. of Thank RBC. Um, this is something that we haven't talked about, and that is the extrapolation of what the banks have said on the earnings call to the economy. And usually JP, Jamie Dimon is, is sort of a, a good prognosticator on that. Tim, what, what was your takeaway? Well, he, he certainly made a very a clear plea for uh, more support for the economy in, the terms, in terms of fiscal stimulus. So um, uh, Jamie Dimon, I think, has always had a very kind of rational and, and sober look at, at the economy and the world. And I, I think that that sent part of the message. And people know that banks ultimately are, are the ultimate barometer trade for the economy. We, we've talked on this show all the time, at least over the last two to three months, maybe six months, where the disconnect between the banking sector and the rest of the market either said there was something wrong in the assessment of the economy or, or, or frankly, how healthy Main Street was and banks should be trading better. Um, maybe on some level, uh, today's uh, temperature test by, by Jamie Dimon and, and to the extent either uh, implicitly by Citibank was, was not all that bullish on the economy. Banks have, have played that story for the last six months. All right. Um, we want to take a check on shares of Bed Bath & Beyond. They are spiking the after-hours session. Let's get to Eric Chemi, who's got the details. Eric. Hey, Melissa, that's right. So check out these shares here. They're up 6% in the last few minutes after the close. Bed Bath & Beyond putting out an 8K selling, uh, saying that it would sell off a lot of non-core assets, which would raise the company a quarter of a billion dollars. And those include its Christmas tree shops division. They would be selling that. They'd also be selling its linen holdings 
to an institutional buyer and a distribution center in Florence, New Jersey. So those are three non-core assets that Bed Bath & Beyond is selling an 8K that was just put out. And that's why you see the stock up 6%. Melissa, back to you. All right, Eric, thank you. And of course, we already know that Bed Bath & Beyond has been on a campaign to reduce its footprint by closing stores. Karen, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, it's very levered, so anything they can do to take down that leverage is good. So they've been doing a great job, and as you said, closing the store base, that's going to end up being good for them. There is a really big short interest here, so it's pricing in a good recovery, which they deserve. They deserve that credit because they are doing a good job, but uh, I'm not in it. All right. Coming up, Apple feeling the need for speed. We're going to take you through the uh, event today where the company unveiled its first ever 5G iPhones. We'll break down how your tra our traders are trading this news. But first, we're following a developing story in the biotech world. As a second major drug company pauses its coronavirus trial, we'll bring you the very latest when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following a developing story in the biotech world as Eli Lilly becomes a second major drug company to pause its coronavirus trial within just the past 24 hours. Let's get to Meg Terrell with the details. Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, Lilly, of course, is developing antibody drugs to treat COVID-19. We learned of this uh, temporary pause on enrollment in one of its antibody trials, actually from a doctor, Dr. Jeremy Faust, who tweeted about it uh, today, essentially saying that it had been paused due to potential safety concerns in the trial. Now, we don't have much more information, but here's what we do know. This is an NIH-sponsored study testing the antibody drug on top of standard of care for hospitalized patients, which is remdesivir. Now, uh, Lily telling us there was this pause in enrollment essentially to ensure safety of patients participating in the trial. Uh, we don't know anything more about it right now, Melissa, and we do know that their other antibody trials are continuing, so only pausing this one trial. You also mentioned Johnson & Johnson. Last night, they confirmed they've paused enrollment in their COVID-19 vaccine trials uh, due to an unexplained illness. Uh, now, that is under review from a data safety monitoring board. At this point, we don't even know if the patient, uh, this participant, received vaccine uh, or placebo. Uh, not a lot of details, but we did talk with J&J CFO Joe Wolk this morning about how this might affect timelines. Here's what he told us. Even with the pause, we're still planning for success. We're looking at first quarter of next year is the timeline that we've put out there. Um, we are continuing to invest as if success will occur. So we expand, we're continuing to expand our manufacturing footprint to uh, ensure that in the event we do receive approval, that we're ready to go and manufacture and distribute vaccines to as many people as might need them. Now, Melissa, of course, these headlines sound very scary, but what experts are telling us is this is actually the system working as it should be. These are very large trials, and they're under a ton of scrutiny. We usually just don't hear about these kinds of things, but what it shows is that these independent data monitoring boards are watching the trials closely, pausing them if something looks off, investigating, and if they look okay, allowing them to start again. But at this point, we just don't know what the events were. Meg, just to be clear, uh, this trial specifically was the antibody drug in concert with remdesivir. Is that correct? The antibody drug alone, uh, last week, it was it that Eli Lilly filed an EUA for that? 
Yes. So uh, both Eli Lilly and Regeneron have filed for emergency use authorization of their antibody drugs. And the data that Lilly has is in a different setting. It's for patients who are not in the hospital. So they weren't receiving the antibody on top of remdesivir. We don't know if that led to these issues, but that is a difference in those two settings. And we don't even know if the patient who got sick was on the placebo or the actual uh, treatment, correct? That's right. We have no details about that information in Lilly's trial or in Johnson & Johnson's trial at this point. All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell, keeping on top of all this for us. Uh, Guy Dami, where do you go here with uh, Lilly, J&J? You pick. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad Meg gave you that answer because there are you know, clinical trials going on all the time that are stopped for whatever reason that we never hear about because obvi for obvious reasons, maybe we're just not all that interested in. This is hyper-focused, and I can understand why. But with that said, Lilly's traded awful since the beginning of July. Now, just look at it quickly. They report on October 27th. Uh, this 148 level, if you go back to February, the stock made an all-time high at that point of 148, then sort of fell off the cliff and traded down to 122. So past resistance becomes support. You're talking about a company at 18 and a half times next year's earnings, not ridiculous by big cap pharma standards, and you probably have 11% EPS growth. So mm -hmm. I think you buy Eli Lilly into earnings against this 148 support level, in my opinion. By the way, Regeneron traded higher today, presumably because Regeneron has a similar antibody drug. It was used by the president in conjunction with remdesivir. Didn't have any apparent side effects there. Um, Seagrasso, where do you go in this space? And, and was this a buying opportunity here? So Guy brings up an interesting point on, on the July levels in these stocks. All of these names, Moderna, Eli Lilly, Johnson & Johnson, Regeneron, are all trading below their July highs. But when you look through the weeds a little bit uh, with J&J, take out the COVID. That has clouded the view of everybody. Everyone's become my myopic on COVID. When you look at multiple my myeloma, when you look at that they beat on revenue there, when you look at that they raised financial guidance for the second time, I think I would go in a Johnson & Johnson, all things being equal. And I think you have to be very careful. The vaccine trade is running out of momentum. So if you're looking for these names, the, the market would show you that they're tripping over themselves to buy them. They're not anymore. Since July, they're making a series of lower highs. I would not be in most of them if all you're hanging your hat on is just the vaccine. I go with a JNJ where you have multiple reasons and multiple levers that they can pull. All right. By the way, for more on Eli Lilly and JNJ, you can head on over to our website, CNBC.com. Here's what's coming up next. A new iPhone, a new HomePod, a new network. Oh, my. We'll bring you all the headlines from Apple's most consequential product launch yet. And Amazon's sixth annual Prime Day in high gear. But will the shopping holiday deliver the gains investors are hunting for? We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Apple making a big bet on speed, unveiling its first lineup of 5G iPhones today. Let's get to Josh Lifton with the details. Hey, Josh. 
So, Melissa, CEO Tim Cook took the stage virtually, of course, and introduced the new iPhone 12. It comes in four versions, all 5G enabled in different sizes, starting from $699 for the iPhone 12 mini, which has a 5.4-inch display, to the iPhone Pro Max, which has a 6.7-inch display and costs $1099. Every decade, there's a new generation of technology that provides a step change in what we can do with our iPhones. The next generation is here. Today is the beginning of a new era for iPhone. Some analysts think initial demand of these iPhones could be softer than expected, though. That's because 5G coverage is still spotty here in the U.S. Their bet is that the shift to 5G is real and Apple is going to ultimately benefit. But consumer adoption, they think, is more of a 2021 event. Apple stock finished lower today, though excitement about 5G, we know, has helped propel it higher this year. It's still up about 130 percent from the March low. It wasn't just new iPhones, by the way. Apple also introduced a small less expensive version of its smart speaker too. The HomePod mini costs $99. Apple's competing in this market with companies like Amazon and Google. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton. Let's get more on Apple's event and the new iPhones. Joining us now is Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Gene, great to see you. I'm Melissa. Hi. How do you think about Apple's run-up so far this year, the valuation of Apple, given uh, if what Josh is saying is true, that it's a 2021 event simply because I mean, even if I were into 5G and wanted speed, my carrier doesn't have a full 5G offering. So, so why am I going to go buy this new phone now? Well, there's two pieces at play here. One is what's going to power the iPhone franchise for the next year. And that really is this legacy base. They've added 90 million iPhone owners that have three years old or older iPhones. That's typically when you get into that upgrade window. So massive tailwind coming into the next year. That's positive. That's going to get them to those uh, that step up in growth next year. The street's looking for 15% revenue growth from flattish this year. So feel comfortable on that from the tailwind. That has nothing to do with 5G. I agree with your comment, Josh's comment also, that uh, some of the comments today from Verizon specifically, I think really overstate where uh, 5G is at. And I think as consumers start to get a hold of these devices, they will start to understand that the speed just simply isn't there. That is not an indictment about the 5G opportunity longer term. This is massive. And for Apple, this is going to be a three-year upgrade cycle. So think of it this way. Mm -hmm. 2021 is the year of the old iPhones, people upgrading their old iPhones, excuse me, uh, next year. And then 22, 23, 24, a three-year upgrade cycle around 5G. So I am uh, most optimistic, but I think there is a a layer of uh, caution in terms of what consumers should expect about that 5G experience for the next year. Why should we think that after three years, consumers will upgrade their iPhones if they still work, if we're in a pandemic, if people are, are uncertain you know, about, about their economic prospects, if they're going to be employed in a year? I mean, I've, I've got a seven, and it still works okay. <laughs> this is definitely more than three years old. Let me old, ask you this, Melissa. It, it, it works okay, but are you thinking about that upgrade? I, I suspect that that thought has uh, crossed your mind. That's... Uh, um, Ultimately, to answer, to answer your question is why, how is this going to continue to propel is that the iPhone business was flat last quarter. And so uh, despite the pandemic, it's been flattish. Now, that's different than what's happened with the Mac and the iPad business. Those two are about 20 percent of revenue, and they were up 30 percent, massive step up from flattish growth before. They're seeing the benefit of work and educate from home. But the iPhone has been more at a kind of this level base. And so 
I think ultimately is that uh, it's pretty straightforward, is that uh, we depend on these devices and no one in the world makes a better device than Apple. I, I try to uh, keep a very steady uh, middle of the road approach to all of this, but I think that that is a statement in fact, this is the best phone. And in these, in these times, I think that the iPhone is gonna benefit from that. I would just put out one more piece too. I was critical about 5G coverage from the carriers. That's in the carrier's court, not Apple's court. Mm -hmm. And Apple's added 5G to their phone lineup but kept prices the same. And so uh, two, three years ago, when we talked about adding 5G to phones, these were $1,400 phones for the starting points. Now we're talking about a $700 starting point. It's a very different dynamic. And I think uh, Apple is in a great position to be patient here and capitalize on this, this trend over the next few years. Hey, Gene, it's Tim. Speaking of the carriers, so, how about a driver coming from Verizon who stepped forward and, and talked about financing and trade-in options? And is this going to bring a larger replacement cycle to people that might have been on the fence, but the carriers are back in play? They're doing this again. This was a big part of uh, uh, two or three cycles ago. Exactly. They're back at it. Uh, they're going to be a part of it. Uh, but it's not an incremental update. It's not an incremental tailwind to this. Uh, the carriers and their promotional activity, they get behind these phones. They want to be a part of it. And so I don't view that as uh, it's neither a negative or a positive. I think it's uh, simply the carriers in this space and in this equation are neutral. I do believe that uh, there is a subtle detail about Apple's event today that gets missed. And if I may, Melissa, mm -hmm. just quickly talk about HomePod Mini. Uh, this is less than 1% of, of revenue. Uh, they have now have a $100 version versus the previous version at $300. Uh, so that's what's going to capture the headlines. But I think what gets missed in the headlines, and this gets back to, to the question about where Apple goes over the next few years, is the ability of that device to integrate with your iPad, your iPhone, CarPlay, other services uh, is, is remarkable. And no other company can do it. And I still beg this question to the investing community more broadly. Why is it that Apple now trades at an inline multiple with the other big tech brethren? Why is it, I believe it should trade at a premium? This is something that no other company can do, bring these devices, these experiences together. And I think it's gonna move the stock higher, I suspect $200 in the next few years. Uh, and I think it's still a reasonable multiple to get there. I do want to ask you about Amazon, um, Gene, but I, I want to ask you one last question about that, the notion of the super cycle. If you don't believe the three-year upgrade cycle and you think it's going to be more like four years or five years, is that still a super cycle? Uh, it is. I don't know what the right uh, uh, way to, to express it. Super cycle is usually just a boom and a bust. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, uh, I don't have a good way to kind of express that, but I would say typically it's a one-year cycle and sometimes they're big one-year cycles. Think about the iPhone 6, for example, but there's boom and bust. Uh, I think we're going into a slow rising tide over the next four years, different drivers each year. And uh, I think it's, this is the best way to invest in 5G is to own Apple. All right. I, wanna, I do want to hit on Amazon since Prime Day started today. It's a two-day event, of course. I was on the site looking around for it. I mean, I'm always looking for a deal, Gene. But what I noticed about Prime Day was that a lot of the deals were uh, the Amazon in-house brand products. And I'm wondering what your take on Prime Day was today. So that's a, uh, there's two topics going on. What's Prime Day all about? And now it's about building brand more broadly, just the Amazon brand. It used to be about gaining uh, Prime members. When they started five years ago, there were 70 million Prime members. Now there's about 150 million. Mission accomplished for Prime Day to add, because you've got to be a Prime member to participate in Prime Day. But then there's this dynamic about what you're picking up, which is uh, really gets to what's going on in the regulatory environment with Amazon. 
How much should they be promoting their own products? How much do they compete with the sellers on their platform? I'm not surprised to hear that. I uh, have not been shopping on Prime Day. Uh, I, I will undoubtedly look in, uh, in this 48-hour window. But uh, my, my simple take on it this way is Amazon should be careful and tread, tread softly on this because this is a hot button and uh, they don't want to poke the bear. This is precisely the issue outlined in that House report. Uh, Gene, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Gene Munster. Um, you pick. Guy, Apple or Amazon, what do you want to trade? Cho- choose, choose your adventure. Choose your own adventure. So I would trade. So, so this is not a would you rather, but I'll turn it into one since Steve <laughs> was able to do that earlier. I would rather Amazon here, and I'll tell you why. Because Apple reports at the end of the month, they think on the 29th. Obviously, they fired the split bullet last quarter. This is sort of a weird quarter for them. You wonder how much was pulled forward. This moved from 103 to 120. Is basically a textbook 50% retracement of the recent all-time high in that 103 low. Makes sense that it stopped here. Amazon, I think, continues to run into earnings. I said that last night. So given the parameters that you just said, I would rather Amazon right here. All right. Coming up, a new way to get in on the tech trade with some under-the-radar plays. We'll tell you about them straight ahead and later. United Health hitting new all-time highs as it gears up for earnings. We'll break down how options traders are playing this name into tomorrow's report. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. ETF powerhouse Invesco launching a new way to get in on the tech trade. Let's get to Bob Pisani, who's got the details. Bob. Hello, Melissa. Good to see you. You know, success begets success. Invesco's NASDAQ 100 ETF, that's the triple Q, it's become a monster in the ETF space. And today they're expanding on that original idea. You can call it junior NASDAQ 100. They're launching an ETF, which is essentially the 101 to 200 big tech innovators. They're calling it the NASDAQ Next Generation 100 ETF. The symbol is QQQJ. Get it? J for junior. It includes mid-cap companies that are using technology in innovative ways. Now, it includes some obvious choices like Seagate and internet security firm Zscaler, but it's also got companies like Garmin and Lyft and and social game developer Zynga. These aren't necessarily pure tech companies, but they are companies using technology in interesting ways. You know, who can blame Invesco for trying to capitalize on the success of the NASDAQ 100 and the QQQ? This all started way back in 1999. That was one of the original ETFs. It's now the fifth largest ETF in the United States. There's $130 billion in assets under management. You can't really blame them for starting a second version of it. By the way, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen a junior varsity version of an ETF. Remember back in 2009, Van Eck was very successful with the gold miners ETF with GDX. It was so successful, they also decided to launch the junior gold miners ETF, GDXJ now. And that's since then become a regular part of the whole gold trading space. By the way, Melissa, great volume today. 870,000 shares uh, in this next gen ETF, $26. That's $25 million. Not bad for a first day. I think that's pretty good trading. Bob, when you think about the GDXJ versus the GDX, you think the GDXJ with the junior miners, um, it has more beta to it than a GDX. So if you wanted to have more volatility in your trade, um, wanted more upside uh, to, to the space, you would go with GDXJ. Is that the same thinking for the QQQJ? 
I don't think they consciously probably did it that way. But if I had to guess, I mm -hmm. would say over time, the junior would have more volatility. These tend to be smaller companies. Some of them are a little more up and coming. And so the volatility, I think, or the beta, excuse me, I think the beta tends to be a little bit higher. I don't think that was intentional, but I do think you're probably right. That will be uh, one of the effects of it. And by the way, they also launched three others, correct, Bob? Variations of the Qs. Yes, these are, uh, yeah, one of them is a version uh, essentially of the triple Qs, but it's a lower price version. This is true with a lot of these, uh, these uh, ETFs like the Spider SPY. So they try to keep the higher price uh, on it because they make a lot of money, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of pressure with competitors like the S&P 500, other ETFs. So they launch a lower price version. That's essentially the same thing. And they're saying, oh, the old one has higher liquidity. The lower one is for long-term holders. And right. it's five basis points lower here. It's the same fun, though. So yes, they've got a few other little tricks out there. All right, Bob. Thank you, Bob Pisani. He was also, by the way, the host of ETF Edge, which is why he's the expert in this. Uh, Steve Grasso, how would you think of the QQQJ? Mm -hmm in your portfolio. Yeah, I, I think this is a sign of the times. I think the retail trader and the professional trader like to use these ETFs uh, more so than using direct plays. They like to hedge their portfolios if they own something else. But I think what Bob had just mentioned that Zscaler is up 232% year to date. You don't need any help getting eyeballs on that one. Zing is up 55% year to date, but you are gonna get a lot more eyeballs on a Garmin. Uh, so I think the retail or the, or the Robin Hood traders are going to get in there and look under the hood. And, and I think basically the, uh, the analogy to the miners, it all sort of comes out in the wash. You would think they'd have a higher beta on the, on the junior, but they're actually both up the same amount year to date. I think this one will actually be different, though. You have those large cap tech companies that really take all the attention mm -hmm. and are the elephants in the room. But when you look at a Z scaler, I think people are going to start to really pay attention to the innards of these names. And they'll wind up trading this as much as they would the regular Qs if you're a junior type right. trader. Um, I mean, as, as Stephen mentioned, the reach for the retail trader, Karen, but this is also happening um, at a firm that is in an industry which is under pressure in terms of assets under management. Right. That's sort of the interesting part to me uh, that, you know, Invesco, we saw the advance. We saw um, Nelson Peltz taking a stake uh, in Invesco and I think Janice Henderson. And then on the JP Morgan call today, they seemed very open to the idea of acquiring some sort of asset manager if they could find the right one. Mm. So that's interesting to me, actually, from that side, as opposed to I'm not quite sure what, what, I would, what the junior, I, I don't know what to make of it, but... The asset management consolidation that I believe is coming is interesting to me. Coming up, Delta hitting new headwinds today. What the company said about the future that could create some more turbulence in this trade. And later, we're counting down to earnings from United Health. The stock hitting record highs today. And option traders are betting on even healthier gains when it reports. We'll break down the action when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Delta Airlines dropping today after the company reported a Q3 loss of more than $5 billion. Phil Lebeau just sat down with Delta CEO Ed Bastian. He's in Chicago with the latest. Phil. 
You know, Melissa, whenever we do these earnings reports, especially over the last couple of quarters with a company like Delta, the fact that they had an ugly third quarter is not news. Everybody knew that they were going to have a multi-billion dollar loss. They lost $3.30 a share on an adjusted basis, a little worse than what analysts were expecting. Uh, That comes with revenue dropping 79%. The real focus, the cash burn. And look where Delta was in the third quarter versus where they went in September. They went from $24 million a day being burned for all of Q3 down to $18 million in September. Now, the goal in the fourth quarter, get somewhere between $10 and $12 million, maybe down to $10 million by the end of the year, and then perhaps break even by sometime next spring. When we talked with Ed Bastian earlier today, he said, look, the key is eliminating those routes where you're not making money and seeing where you can, as much as possible, cut costs and get back to break even. Our capacity in the fourth quarter is down 40%, so we've already eliminated a significant amount of those loss-making routes. It's going to take some time before, before you know, into the spring, early part of next year, before we start to see uh, profits as well as cash flow uh, positive results. But the reality is, is that this is going to take some time. But you think about if we can get to that point in 12 months time, it's pretty remarkable. All right. It's all about liquidity and debt. And in terms of liquidity, Delta ended the third quarter with twenty one point six billion dollars. The net debt adjusted net debt is about seventeen billion dollars. And they've already paid down since the end of the third quarter. Melissa, they paid down about $5 billion in debt, a revolver, and there was another debt payment in there. One other airline note, take a look at shares of United. Why are we showing you this? Because tomorrow at this time, we'll be talking about United's Q3 results ahead of talking with Scott Kirby, CEO of United, on Thursday morning. So this is the beginning of airline earnings season, or should Mm -hmm. I say financial season, because there's (laughs) no earnings for the third quarter. Uh, But it was interesting to, to listen to Delta talk about pushing that break-even point back out to spring. They originally were targeting the end of the year. I mean, they, they just targeted the end of the year in the second quarter, correct, Phil? In the second quarter earnings yeah, report. Essentially, or loss report, correct. whatever you want to call correct. it. Correct. Yes. Okay. And, and remember, when they all got the CARES Act back in March, they mm-hmm. said, look, our hope is that we all can get to break-even by the end of the year. But let's be honest. It was so early in the pandemic, nobody was quite sure how bad things were going to get. All right. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau. Uh, nobody was quite sure, but the stock did go up on that forecast. <laughs> I'm wondering at this point, do you believe them and, and Ed Bastian's forecasts now? I mean, things slide all over the place. It's a very difficult thing to predict when people are going to mm. want to fly again. You should rely on that which they can control for the most part, which is their cash burn and, and, and their, their balance sheet and their liquidity at this point. And, and I think that's the part of this, whether you know, they push back free cash flow a, a quarter you know, early spring versus year end. And will they be there in early spring? I'm not sure the market's so clear. Um, The kind of news, the kind of, you know, the the day we had with Eli Lilly and J&J yesterday in the sense that science takes a long time and and that there's a lot of dynamics here moving with the pandemic. I, I don't think anyone expects airlines to move along quickly. Delta is best balance sheet of the major carriers. And I think yesterday's trade was to sell them. I think being in this trade longer term is is something you can start to look at. All right. We're going to have much more on the airlines in a CNBC special. Do not miss Shepard Smith reports air travel in turmoil. That airs tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. Still ahead, United Health about to kick off a key round of health care earnings. We'll tell you how options traders are setting up for the report. And then coming up at the top of the hour, Jim Cramer is sitting down with the CEO of fitness drink company Celsius. That's tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money straight ahead. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. United Health hitting a new record high ahead of tomorrow's earnings report. Options traders are betting that now is the time to buy. Bono and Eisen's got the action. Hey, Bono and. How's it going, Melissa? So taking a look forward, calls and puts are pretty evenly distributed, but I will note that the option volume was about twice what we typically see on a day. If you take a look at the at-the-money straddles, you'll see that options are applying a 3% move out to Friday expiry, but an 11% move out to December expiry. That stacks up against a 4% average move coming out of earnings. And I want to point out what looked to me to be a pretty slick trade on a rather nondescript day. So taking a look at the UNH December 300 put, 1,000 of those were sold at about 780. You're collecting 2.5% of your premium. Again, that's almost 60% of the 4% average earnings move. Your break-even is down at 88% of spot. Thought it was a pretty crafty way to add a little bit of yield to the portfolio on a pretty low vol stock. All right, Bono and thanks. For more options action, catch the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time up next, Final Trade. Time, Tim. Buying Morgan Stanley. Karen. Big stimulus or small, I like Walmart. Steve. Olin, it's up over 40% in the last 13 days. Probably gonna double from here. I'm still I'm still long it. Guy. Blackstone. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Kramer starts right now. Mm-hmm. 